The Italian government, led by former European Central Bank President Mario Draghi, blocked a shipment of 250,000 AstraZeneca jabs bound for Australia. The controversial move comes after complaints that the pharmaceutical firm wasn't meeting its contractual obligations for supplying the block. Tut, tut. Those vaccines will now be redistributed to the EU's 27 members. Sadly, the idea of working together remains at sea. Later, we'll be checking in with our New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan, who is heralding the loose of restrictions in his home state later this month. He's happy, it seems, despite his questionable proviso that he's not hounded by saxophonists. More on what on earth I'm talking about a little later on in the show. Last up, we'll discuss the airline industry and Australian carrier Qantas's bid to bring back its so-called mystery flights programme. All strapped in? Then let's begin. Monocle's panellists tackle these topics this evening from Midori House on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 5th of March and I'm Josh Fennett. And joining me in studio today at Midori House are Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Rimella, and our head of radio, Tom Edwards. Tom, it's Friday evening, so settle a bet. How does the worldly head of a global radio station unwind for the weekend? Right here, Josh, in studio one, good evening to you and our listeners around the world. Good evening, uh, Chiara. I already feel more relaxed. I, I don't know if it's just your dulcet tones, uh, Fennett, but something's, something's sending me to sleep already. <laughs> and um, Chiara, you've been uh, busy today crossing the T's and dotting the I's of Monocle's forthcoming April edition, which goes to press this week, we tell the writers, slash next week, <laughs> we tell the printers. Um, can you offer us a bit of a sneak peek about what's in the pipeline for your impeccably delivered section next month? Actually, I'm really proud of this month because um, I think we have a really interesting theme. Uh, the issue is all around the idea of making an effort, whatever that means, I guess, for every different sector or industry. And uh, in my section, I, I decided to look at making an effort in journalistic terms. And so those reporters who, despite everything and despite how hard everything has been, have been on the front line, literal or metaphorical, still delivering really important news from corners of the world where issues are still going on beyond the pandemic. So it's a really, really interesting look at super important work being carried out by these journalists. I'm really proud that we made it happen. Very nice. And the subtitle of the issue is about kind of smartening up, whether that's our thinking around how we react to the pandemic, everything else. We're going to discuss some topics later. But Tom, you have smartened up today. You're wearing a kind of a painter's jacket, like some kind of itinerant workman from uh, 1950s Dust Bowl America. What's, what's, what's shaking? That was very much the, the look that I was going for. Uh, I don't know why you always um, pillar in it. I'm lambasted for my uh, wardrobe choices, for my tonsorial inelegance, and for a host of other things besides. Could it be that the pressure of the week, Josh... Has got to you too. It's, 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 Are you it's, lashing out? That's what I'm asking. It's, it's more than got to me. And, and speaking of matters tonsorial, God, I can't wait for a haircut. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Weeks away. And I, I don't want to make an ill-judged uh, remark because obviously everyone, you know, there's so many struggles and tribulations all around, but it's getting, it's getting bad. 
Yeah, well, it, you know, let's see what happens when the pictures are developed of the pandemic. It's going to look a bit like the 70s, everyone a bit shaggy on the back and over the ears. Let's start the evening in Chiara's homeland of Italy, where news broke late yesterday that Mario Draghi's government uh, deigned it a giggle to halt a shipment of 250,000 AstraZeneca jabs from reaching their intended destination of Australia. The reason... Well, Italy, with full EU backing, argues that the Aussies shouldn't get their mitts on them as the pharma firm can't meet its contractual obligations to the bloc. Only around 40% of the originally agreed vaccine haul will arrive on EU shores by the end of March. Um, Chiara, we're going to turn to you first. What do you think Mario Draghi's up to here? Italy is the first country to do more than simply threaten and actually use this new EU mechanism to block deliveries. Is it a smart move? I think at home it will be perceived as a smart move, for sure. Um, Interestingly, looking at the Italian papers today, um, the move is portrayed not so much as, you know, an an Italy-Australia spat, but rather, A, something that's very much got EU backing, so it's not just Italy going on its own kind of way, but it's definitely a a EU-backed decision, and this is specified in every single intro paragraph to every uh, article you read about this. Um, And not only this, I think it's very much perceived as Draghi actually standing up to Big Pharma, more so than uh, having an issue with with Australia. I mean, um, people have been particularly proud and I guess satisfied with Mario Draghi as Prime Minister so far, particularly because he has this air of decisiveness. Everybody praises him for this, I guess, down-to-business approach. And this is very much in keeping with the persona that he's been uh, portraying until now. Um, And I think that will definitely be appreciated. Um, From the point of view of uh, you know the, the opposition to uh, to AstraZeneca. Italy is, it has been, and Italian papers have been very clear in outlining that actually AstraZeneca's CEO had assured them specifically that the vaccines that would be distributed to the EU would not be sold on to other countries. So now they have an issue more so with AstraZeneca than anybody else because they're saying you're actually going back on your own word. Not only are you under-delivering what you'd uh, promised, but you're also going back on the promise that whatever we would get, we would keep. So it's really not a confrontation with Australia. And when you look at, for example, the words that Scott Morrison has said himself, he's saying, you know, I can understand why this is happening. Italy has got 300 people dying a day uh, from uh, COVID. You have to look at the, you know, the fact that Australia is considered in the the reasons why Italy has done this. There are three fundamental reasons why Italy has decided not to do this, and the first one is that Australia is considered not vulnerable. They've had around twenty nine thousand cases overall, nine hundred deaths overall. Italy is looking at three hundred deaths a day at the moment. So you know, even Scott Morrison has said, you know, I can understand why this is happening. Well, a very interesting story that we'll be covering uh, at length. Tom, I'm going to dogleg if you'll let me, from this issue to a slightly different one, but one that I'm personally fascinated by and I think our listeners will be interested in as well. And that's away from vaccine nationalism and I suppose towards kind of vaccine politics. Um, I've been pretty intrigued about when and how and in what instances leaders choose to roll up their sleeves or roll over the opportunity to take a vaccine. If we uh, look down under, so to speak, we'll see that uh, Jacinda Ardern said, you know what, I'm not vulnerable. Let's give uh, the limited number of doses we have to the nurses and frontline workers. ScoMo, Scott Morrison in Australia. God, he was first in the queue, wasn't he? Straight up there like a rat up a drain pipe. Uh, <laughs> what, are the, um, what are the optics to leaders getting their jabs? 
Well, listen, I think in a, in, a, in a way, it is easier to do the selfless thing if you are in a country, I mean, Jacinda Ardern again presides over a nation, a little bit like Kiara was just talking about in Australia, that doesn't have uh, this, anything like the kind of problem. They've got a longer term problem, which is a separate issue in terms of opening back up to the world. And vaccines will be a critical part of that. So it is relevant. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. It's funny you also say, you know, bearing an arm. Um, some leaders... I've been quite taken with how leaders quite literally conduct themselves. It is an interesting dynamic. And clearly in Western countries where there's anti-vax movements, where there's a lot of vaccine scepticism, some of these uh, European countries have this problem. Leaders have a, a tricky decision to make, which is to balance the need to be demonstrative in their support for following best practice and advice and getting the jab um, with not being seen to be... Uh, insensitive or, or, or jumping the, the, the queue it's been really interesting I think looking in the US that's where it's most polarised and it's really intriguing to look at who does what when well it's a subject we'll be watching across Monocle 24 but next today we're heading to the east coast of the US to hear from our adult oddball but always entertaining correspondent in New York at this week Henry Reese Sheridan is mulling over a loosening of restrictions in New York and for some reason beyond my comprehension obsessively reliving a time when he was taunted by an enthusiastic saxophonist at a wedding um, take it away Henry Wedding receptions are coming back. From the 15th of March, New Yorkers can gather for in-person events of up to 150 people, but there are strict rules. I recently read through a list of the rules, so I'll be prepared in the unlikely event of receiving an invitation to a wedding reception. All guests have to provide their names and phone numbers, and these details have to be provided to state officials on request for contact tracing purposes. I wondered if I should be concerned that my data might fall into the hands of the American surveillance state. But just as I was formulating that thought, my eye drifted further down the list, and it was caught by a different item. Live music performers, it says, must be separated from attendees by either 12 feet or an appropriate physical barrier, particularly if unmasked or playing a wind instrument. When I read the words wind instrument, my vision went blurry and I had an involuntary flashback to the only wedding I've attended as a guest since arriving in America. It was in 2019, long before coronavirus. The wedding itself was in a church in Queens, but the reception was in a massive purpose-built wedding reception complex in New Jersey. I enter the reception complex with my wife, but she soon abandons me. I'm in a big hall with hundreds of other guests who I don't know. I begin to circulate slowly around the perimeter of the room, doing a weak pantomime of mingling. My laps are punctuated by stops at catering stations at which board staff dispense hors d'oeuvre. Obnoxious saxophone music is playing and I absolutely hate it. After three laps of the hall, I know I can't go on much longer. My paper plate, which is in fact two paper plates stacked together to create a super strong double plate, or plate squared as I like to call it, is reaching the limits of its load-bearing capacity. Additionally, I may have already exceeded my tolerance for sour cream, which features prominently as an ingredient in the hors d'oeuvre. 
It sounds like the obnoxious saxophone music is moving around the room, fluctuating in tone and volume. I'm considering excusing myself from the party on grounds of sour cream-induced psychosis. But then I discover that the source of the music is in fact mobile and sentient. It's a real-life sax man. He has bright ginger hair and is walking around playing the vocal melodies of contemporary pop songs, accompanied by karaoke-style backing tracks played on an extremely loud portable PA system that he occasionally fiddles with. The sax man is approaching me. I try to ignore him, but before I know what's happening, he's upon me, blowing his horn and swaying his hips. I meant to engage with him in some way, but I really don't want to, and in any case, it's difficult to know how. I look around for help, but none is forthcoming. I'm absolutely not going to dance, so I try to appease the sax man verbally. <laughs> yes, very good, I say good-naturedly. But he's undeterred. Suddenly, my wife emerges out of nowhere. Thank God, she's come to rescue me. But then she reveals herself to be on his side. Go on, Henry, dance with him, she says. Dance with the sax man. People are still milling all around us with their own plate of hors d'oeuvre. I make a gesture at the sax man with my plate, hoping to convey that I couldn't possibly dance while laden with this many hors d'oeuvre. He tortures me for a few more seconds before deciding he's humiliated me sufficiently. He winks at me before moving on to his next victim. You can imagine my relief when, at the very moment my plate threatens to finally buckle, the doors are thrown open to a second, even bigger hall and the guests are ushered in. I dump my plate in a bin behind the bar and hurry through, desperate to escape saxophonic purgatory. To my horror, the sax man follows me into the second hall, and he's bringing his PA system with him. He continues to play while the guests are seated, then stops for some speeches to be made, and for the bride and groom to dance to a sentimental song. But no sooner does that conjugal dance end than the red-haired man is blowing into his horn again, and it becomes apparent that he exclusively will be providing the music for the rest of the evening. And it's not like he's tucked away in the corner. He's walking in between the tables, crouching down so guests can film selfie videos with him. He's on the dance floor, where people are literally queuing up to dance with him. I look over at my wife, who is seated across from me. She's gazing longingly at the sax man, transfixed by his brassy charisma. I can't help but feel that a critical mass of guests at the wedding surreptitiously witnessed my humiliation at the hands and horn of the sax man earlier. I take their enthusiasm for him as a personal affront. This is the audio from a video I took at the wedding. In it, the sax man is standing on a dining chair at the head of a table of people who are worshipping at his feet. Then he steps down and starts dancing with the bride, who looks to be enjoying herself significantly more than when she was dancing with her new husband earlier in the night. The sax man is still playing when we leave hours later. 
I'm not certain he ever stopped. It's possible he walked straight from that wedding reception to a different wedding reception in the wedding reception complex, or indeed to an entirely different wedding reception complex altogether, blowing his horn and trailing his PA system behind him the whole way. I snap out of my flashback and reread the New York State gathering restrictions. Live music performers, it says, must be separated from attendees by either 12 feet or an appropriate physical barrier, particularly if unmasked, or playing a wind instrument. If only that wedding reception was being held now, I think to myself, I would happily design an appropriate physical barrier for Saxman. Imagine, if you will, a plexiglass cage approximately 15 feet by 15 feet. Saxman is suspended in the middle of the cage, his saxophone harness connected to a pulley mechanism, his legs flailing as he hangs in mid-air. At the bottom of the cage is a very deep pit filled with several wedding receptions' supply of sour cream. Every time Saxman stops playing over the course of the evening, he is lowered by half an inch. The plexiglass cage is soundproof. The guests can't hear a single note of Saxman's playing or his stupid backing track, but it's all the Saxman himself can hear. In fact, the guests don't pay much mind to the Saxman at all. They only occasionally glance over to note that his desperate blowing is bringing the complexion of his face ever closer to matching the redness of his hair, and that his flailing body is getting closer, half inch by half inch, to immersion in the sour cream pit. Our very own Henry Reece Sheridan dancing with the sax man of sanity and immersing us all in the sour cream dip of his strange imagination. Curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> um, Do you know what, Josh? I think that subprime Kenny G that he's describing, I think I've been entertained. <laughs> I used the phrase under advisement by that very same performer. I think on the London Underground. Maybe it, maybe it was someone different. Well, Henry may have been raising some serious concerns about light jazz, um, but Kiara, as our, our culture editor, you must be dying to get back out into the world to see a show or a gig in a personal capacity, but also, I suppose, as our um, eyes and ears on a scene that is a big part of the economy, that is a big part of people's lives, that is extremely important, actually, to how we feel about ourselves and the world. How ready and raring to go do you think the culture scene is, or are we still awaiting better news of opening ups? Well, how ready it is. Um, here in the UK, I think all eyes are on June, obviously, um, when we are promised that essentially there will be no restrictions and we'll be able to go party. Imagine that. Maybe on the streets um, or in a nightclub. Remember those. I think um, from the point of view of readiness, uh, a lot of uh, theatres and venues have had plenty of time to think up uh, strategies I, I do think that, particularly here in the UK, they will have to contend with the effects of Brexit, which they haven't quite had to deal with in a practical manner until now, because simply they just haven't had to get sets and equipment over from overseas, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think that will be a bit of a setback. But going over to, I guess, if you'll allow me to be a bit nostalgic and emotional, um, what I'm looking forward to the most. Well, the other day, I actually went on a website called London Ears, which is a list of all the gigs and it was that are coming up here in the, in the capital. And 
It was actually really emotional to look at November and December and just even just read the names of the venues that you haven't been to in a long time. You know, suddenly seeing Cafe Otto and Scala and, you know, Islington Assembly Hall and all these places that immediately bring up memories of... Um, amazing performances I miss small gigs in those kind of locations I miss stadium gigs I mean I miss the feeling that you get when I went to see Shakira you know at Wembley or at the O2 Arena wherever it was and that feeling of like just collective euphoria and the fact that just because there are thousands and thousands of people around you that's a special occasion so yeah I think if Shakira's touring again I've, I'm definitely going to book a ticket um I miss uh, stumbling out of pub at 1am and deciding to go to a place like Passage Bar in Dalston where you kind of have to squeeze through the door and onto people and staying there until the, the, the sun comes up. Squeeze onto people? Onto, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> that's, that's what I always do. Um, but I think one of the things I miss the most is theatre. And, you know, going back to, I guess, a bit more of a serious industry point about this, much as we know that the music industry relies largely on live events for um, its takings, at least it does have some other streams of revenue. You can, though not very much, earn from you know, album sales and streaming plays, etc. With theatre, there really is no alternative. It's either going to the show or not. You can maybe pre-sell some tickets and things like that. So I would say that that was my main concern until now. As I'm really looking forward to going to the National Theatre and to Saddles Wells as soon as physically possible. Amazing. And uh, Tom, will opening up of restrictions change anything for a man as set in his ways and superannuated as yourself? Um, I think that Kiara's description of a nightclub to me was the stuff of waking nightmares, even, <laughs> even pre-pandemic. Even pre so, you it, squeeze onto people? I, I haven't done that since the late 1990s. Um, but l listen, it does. I know, I know exactly what Kiara means, and it's you know you feel. You just feel kind of robbed of opportunities, and I know. And, we, and again, one needs to be sensitive to people who have lost so much more in terms of livelihoods and loved ones and all the rest of it. But it is crushing, I think, especially for people. You know, we're very interested in, in particular, you know, cities and city life. And I think people, especially who move to cities, have a entirely justified expectation that they're going to meet incredible people and do incredible things and have fun and have moments of serendipity and uh, of excitement and maybe stuff that's a bit nervous. And that's what city life is. And if you're you know, there's people who maybe have left college and or taken a new job who've not even met their colleagues, and they certainly have, they've lived this weird culturally denuded existence, and it's really really sad. And actually, it's super important. And you could argue, in some respects, it probably is as important for the national psyche and the national good and the national economy um, to protect areas like these, just as it's important to protect frontline services and, and the health sector. So. I think there's a real willingness for everyone to, to, to back the things they love. I, I share your sentiment. Can you imagine, Kiara, June 21st, strolling down the South Bank, going to the National Theatre? That would be incredible. And I think it's good that at least we've got dates. It's only from June 21st. <laughs> Don't want to let you down. Um, but how nice just to have something to tilt at, however vainglorious that might be. Well, who needs a Shakira stage show when we have a performance like that? Both great answers, and I'm wholeheartedly <laughs> with you. Um, finally, we're going to jet off to Australia for the last departure of the day. It's no secret that the aviation industry has taken a hit during the coronavirus pandemic. The industry is estimated to have lost some $370 billion in 2020. 
Ouch. But in Australia, where lockdowns are relatively relaxed, Qantas is attempting to inject a bit of excitement into domestic air travel while international borders remain shut. The carrier has again started selling so-called mystery flights in which the final destination remains unknown to the traveller. Here's a hint, though. It probably ends somewhere in Australia. Flight Global's Greg Waldron spoke to Monocle earlier about the idea, which has been revived from the 1990s. That's the idea, not Greg Waldron. Here he is on our flagship morning show, The Globalist, a little earlier. Well, it seems in the 1990s you could just show up at the airport and they'll fly you to some destination. I think you'd have you know a few drinks on the plane, uh, maybe have you know lunch where uh, at your point of arrival, then you return. I think now you actually have to book it before you go to the airport. But it seems like a really kind of uh, fun thing to do. You know, you go out to Sydney Airport, you get on the plane, you don't really have any idea where you're going. Um, sip wine um, as you travel somewhere. You land in a mystery destination. You don't find out where until you actually land. And maybe have a nice lunch in a vineyard or on the beach or on a mountain or in Tasmania, something like that. And then you fly back in time for dinner. So um, sounds like a lot of fun. Greg Waldron from Flight Global speaking to us earlier on The Globalist. Um, Tom, the script I'm reading reliably informs me that this is an interesting idea. Uh, though, <laughs> though I personally wonder if it sounds more like a craven attempt at PR from a suffering airline. Um, will people indulge themselves in this manner and is it wise to have people moving around on a whim at a time when actually some people have maybe thought about a bit of a rebalancing of when and where and how we need to travel? Yeah, I think in that context it does sound slightly maybe borderline lunatic, but certainly a bit irresponsible. However, who can say that as Greg described that idea of having a couple of glasses of wine, luncheon at a vineyard, you're thinking, yes, please. My only issue with this is in the principle, which is that given there are constraints, i.e. it is within the borders of your nation, it's unlikely that it's going to exceed your expectations. You, You could end up at the very place you actually wanted to go. That's the single best case scenario. All other options are worse than that. Now, that could be, I'm a kind of a glass half empty man. Can I shock you? But do you see, I I just struggle to see how this delivers happy punters. But maybe they've had so many glasses of Pinot Gris on the outbound that they're not even bothered. No, I completely agree with you. You you, you think to yourself, oh God, I hope I end up in the Blue Mountains. And you go literally anywhere else and it's not right. Why didn't you just book to go there? Very, (laughs) very strange, very strange. Um, Kiara, what do you make of this move by Qantas? Is it... uh, gimmickry is it uh, fair enough because uh, these planes need to keep running it's an expensive business and if there's a demand let's do it um, or is it actually quite a clever idea to help uh, domestic tourism well putting the environmental discussion aside I don't have so much of a problem with surprise and under <laughs> and an underwhelming experience in that I'm just thinking back lifetime about... of experience is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just I, I just don't have very high expectations, I guess. No, I I will just think about um, all the flights that I've been on uh, for a monocle, for example. And in some ways, they are some some to some degree a surprise because you're going on a story, and sometimes they are places that you would never have chosen for a holiday. And generally, sometimes you find out about places that are great. Like, I'll have to admit, I didn't think I would book a holiday to Bucharest. I went to did a story in Bucharest. It was amazing. It was a great three days. And I don't think I would have gone on the Ryanair website and chosen Bucharest as my first destination. I'm sorry for Romania Tourism Board, but I'm doing my job now in saying that it is great. On the other hand, I have to say, 
and and this time I won't mention the locations. I've been on assignment for Monocle to visit some perhaps very interesting companies in questionable locations and generally got to the airport three hours in advance because <laughs> I was that desperate to leave. I have to say, I don't often sit quite close enough to the front of the plane to really relish the experience um, of being on board. And as a well-blooded Monocle correspondent, you know, we've we've both been to our fair share of uh, car parks in Essen and uh, and uh, Messer Hallers in uh, Cologne to know that just because Germany's beautiful doesn't mean every single trip there is great. And I can really relate to that idea that you go and cover a story in a place where your expectations might be slightly off, you're not quite sure what you'll find. And really having a moment of revelation, uh, I did some reporting in Warsaw and uh, actually in Budapest as well. Budapest, I was been to Vienna a lot, but Budapest, absolutely gorgeous, beautiful place. And this has been paid for by the Hungarian <laughs> Tourist Board. Um, sadly, we're going to need to jet off ourselves. And that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to what the script calls Tom Ewars. Um, not quite sure what that means. And Chiara Rumella here in London. Thank you to our studio manager, Louis Allen, and our producer, Ed Soccer. The late edition returns at the same time on Monday. Until then, I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening and have a lovely weekend. Ta-ra. 